thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And if last week's episode, in which I explained how the United States Supreme Court had used the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment to amend the Constitution by taking the requirement of procedural due process to infuse within it understandings that were foreign to the common law, to create a liberty, not of movement, but to kill your unborn child or a liberty to have homosexual sodomy, or a liberty to force the government to issue a marriage license to two people of the same sex. Uh, I mean, just let that settle on you for a moment. Instead of the sense of liberty to move around, liberty from government interference, it's now a liberty to force the government to actually do something that it otherwise hasn't done. How in the world could that be a new understanding of liberty. So so if that doesn't get you mad, then today we're really going to get you upset when you begin to understand what the actual limited nature of the federal judicial power is, and you will see how our state elected officials, as well as our federal ones, have essentially acted as if the United States Supreme Court has more power than it really has under the U.S. Constitution. It just drives me batty, to be honest. And um, that's what we're going to get into today. So the first place to start when we want to understand what the power is of the federal judicial branch and the Supreme Court, of which it's a part, is to go to the Constitution to see what it says. And so when you go to the Constitution, Article 3 deals with the federal judicial branch. And specifically, here's what it says about the power of the federal judicial branch, which applies to the federal district courts, the courts of appeals, known as the circuit courts, and the Supreme Court of the United States. And it says this, the judicial power. Now, I'm going to stop right there to say, notice the modifier of the word power. It is judicial. Judicial, as its name implies, has to do with judging or making judgments. As distinguished from Article 1 and 2 of the Constitution, which talk about the legislative power, which would be the power to legislate, to enact laws, and the executive power, which is to execute the laws that are made. So we have to appreciate that the courts only have a power in the nature of making judgments. Now, what do they make their judgments in regard to? The sentence goes on. So I'll start back at the beginning. The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity. Now, those are two different branches of of judicial power judgment-making, okay, uh, which we have kind of really blurred the distinction between those in many, many instances. We used to have chancery courts here in Tennessee. Well, 
excuse me, we still do have chancery courts here in Tennessee, and they were considered courts of equity, and the circuit courts were considered courts of law. And today you can pursue certain kinds of legal actions in either court. But the point is that it extends to cases, and then it spells them out. Arising under this Constitution, the laws of the United States, and treaties made by the United States. Now, what's interesting about the cases that are listed there, the Constitution, laws, and treaties, is that those words exactly parallel the Supremacy Clause, which says that the Constitution, the laws of the United States, which are made by Congress pursuant to its powers and treaties, are the supreme law of the land. Then it goes on to say, and to all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction. So we're dealing with uh, on the waters and the seas. And then it says, to controversies to which the United States shall be a party, to controversies between two or more states, between a state and citizens of another state, between citizens of different states, and it goes on with a few other kinds of things involving certain kinds of citizens and states and uh, foreign states and citizens or foreign subjects. So, in other words, the federal judicial power only extends to what we call in the shorthand cases and controversies, and only certain kinds of cases and certain kinds of controversies. Now, these words cases or controversies indicate, and here's what the court has said, they indicate a dispute between parties. So here's what's important about that. The judicial power only extends to resolve a dispute between the particular people in the courtroom and the dispute between those particular people. In other words, its power does not extend to provide any kind of relief or remedy or judgment or decision for anybody that's outside that courtroom. That's it. Now, if you understand what I just said, your mind has to be reeling some because you're sitting here thinking, wait wait a minute. I thought when the Supreme Court said that the abortion law in Texas, for example, in 1973, was not constitutional, the court struck down that law and that judgment applied to all the states who had similar laws? And the answer is no, it did not extend to anybody other than the people who sued over the Texas law and the state of Texas. That's it. The judicial power cannot go beyond the case or controversy that is in front of the court. Now, I'm going to come back to this to explain for just a moment why every state stopped enforcing their abortion laws. But I want to move to another thing that's got to have your mind whirling. What about these federal district courts that ruled that something that President Trump did, perhaps an executive order or some kind of department rule or regulation under President Trump, well, that's unconstitutional, and they enjoined the enforcement of that executive order or that departmental rule or regulation throughout the whole country even though the federal district court and the uh, circuit court, the Court of Appeals, only has jurisdiction over perhaps three or four people who've actually sued the president over it. So how does the court 
now say that that rule or regulation can't be enforced or applied or administered with respect to any other person who isn't in front of the court and complaining about it. What if everybody else in the whole country thought it was wonderful, except for those three or four people who sued? Does What's going on here? And and I'm glad you've asked that question, albeit through, through me, because Justice Gorsuch said something about these nationwide injunctions just last year, actually, in, in 2020. It was in a case called the Department of Homeland Security versus New York, and what he noted, the Supreme Court did not take the case because another case was coming up through the courts that would, would present the issue. But he says this granting a stay by a federal district court that, that purports to apply everywhere outside of Illinois said these kinds of remedies are, are inappropriate. Here's what he said. Remedies are meant to redress the injuries sustained by a particular plaintiff in a particular lawsuit. So, he continues, when a district court orders the government not to enforce a rule against the plaintiffs in the case before it, the court redresses the injury that gives rise to its jurisdiction in the first place. In other words, its jurisdiction is only provoked when there's a case or controversy between particular parties. And then Gorsuch continues, but when a court goes further than that, ordering the government to take or not take some action with respect to those who are strangers to the suit, in other words, other citizens who are not in that courtroom, Gorsuch continues, it's hard to see how the courts could still be acting in the judicial role of resolving cases and controversies. And and what is he saying here? Again, notice the word, the judicial role. The judicial role is to exercise judgment with respect to how the law should be applied to particular people in the courtroom. It does not make a law or a rule, nor can it fashion a remedy that extends beyond the persons in the courtroom to all other people. A law is what extends to all people, not a judgment of the court. And so Gorsuch continues, Injunctions like these where the federal district court in Hawaii is maybe saying you can't do anything anywhere in the country, thus raise serious questions about the scope of courts' equitable powers under Article 3. What's he saying? He's saying we only have a certain limited power according to the Constitution. We can't go beyond the power the Constitution gave us. And the Constitution limits our power to making judgments about the law and its application to the people that are involved in the case or controversy and not to anyone else who is not a part of the case or controversy. So when anybody says, well, the Supreme Court legalized abortion, or when anybody says, well, the Supreme Court made abortion legal, or abortion is the law of the land, that is just a wrong statement. It reflects that the person making the statement is either sloppy, trying to misrepresent things to you, or does not understand that courts do not make law because they have only the judicial power. So when you hear references made by some of the 
actually decent Supreme Court justices, the, the most decent of which we have right now is uh, Clarence Thomas, that says the court has neither force nor will. You see, what it's saying is the, the power of force belongs to the executive branch to enforce the law. The power of will is to direct all people to do or not do certain things. That's the legislative power. It exercises will to say, do this or do that. But the power the judicial branch has is simply a judicial power to exercise judgment. And that's what was said in Federalist Paper 81. It said that the courts have neither force nor will, but only judgment to decide a dispute, a case, or a controversy between particular people in a courtroom. Now, let's, let's go back to what I mentioned before. Take the Texas abortion case that became known as Roe v. Wade. The court looked at a particular law in the state of Texas, and they looked at the pregnant woman who had, had sued, and they said, this law goes beyond the powers of the state government we talked about that last week, because they wrote into the enumerated right of procedural due process, this right of liberty in a woman to kill her child. They said, so therefore, that law cannot be enforced by officials in the state of Texas. Now, notice what the court actually says, and the Supreme Court said this just a few weeks ago in connection with the new heartbeat bill that Texas just passed. The court said, our power extends only to enjoining, meaning to prevent somebody from acting, to enjoining a state official from administering or enforcing a law, but we do not enjoin laws. Now, what are they saying? They are saying what the Supreme Court was saying in that case. This is, again, just a few weeks ago, is that we can't do anything to the law. The legislature makes the law. We can't strike the law down. We can't repeal the law. We can't amend the law. All we can do is tell the defendant, state actor, that you cannot administer that law, but only with respect to the particular person that's in front of you, Jane Roe. Well, what about all the other women in Texas who want to have abortions? Well, the judicial power... In, exercised in Roe versus Wade did not and could not extend to other pregnant women in the state of Texas. Why? They weren't in front of the federal court. Could it extend to people in Tennessee? Well, no, it couldn't extend to anybody in Tennessee. At best, it can only extend to people in Texas. Of course, as I said, it can't. But, but the law in Tennessee wasn't in front of the court. There was no case or controversy regarding the abortion law in Tennessee. So no court has told any official in Tennessee you can't enforce or administer that abortion law, even if it is exactly like the law in Texas. Because you see, if the Tennessee officials treated that judgment as if it constitutionally bound them to not enforce the law, they would be giving to the judicial branch, not a judicial power, but a power to make law for the whole nation. And I want to come back to that statement in just a moment. But what happens is, and here's why states would stop enforcing their abortion law, is that they would look at the court's opinion and they would say, well, wow, this is a really, really well-reasoned opinion. I had not thought about this issue 
And so if I continue to enforce the law in Tennessee, even though the judgment doesn't apply to Tennessee or to Tennessee's law or to any state official in Tennessee, I'll probably get sued by a pregnant woman. And I'll probably lose because I can't think of a better argument than the one Texas made. And so the state of Tennessee would choose not to enforce its law. And the proper action is then to go to the legislature and say, would you amend or revise the law to change the wording in such a way as we think would, would allow the law to be enforceable? But the law's still on the books. The law hadn't changed, and not until the legislature changes it. However, and this is the important point, if state officials and the attorney general who would prosecute the claim think, well, that was a stupid argument made by the state of Texas. We have a better argument. And actually, now that we know how the Supreme Court has argued for the unconstitutionality of the law in Texas, we can point out all the fallacies in their reasoning and their rationale. So we're going to go ahead and continue to enforce our abortion law in the state of Tennessee, and we want the pregnant woman to sue us because we're going to make the different, the better, the stronger argument and expose the fallacy of the court's reasons for entering the judgment against Texas. Now let me explain why it is so important that states take this kind of initiative to examine the court's ruling, to examine the arguments that were actually offered and which ones weren't argued. Because when a state does not do that, it is essentially according to the federal judicial branch, ceding to it an authority that it does not have, namely an authority to effectively make law for everybody, which is not part of the judicial power. Now, here's what Abraham Lincoln said about this, and I want to close today's episode with this. And next week, we're going to come back and talk about the issue of precedence and stare decisis. But Abraham Lincoln said this, Judicial decisions are of greater or less authority as precedent according to the circumstances. This accords both with common sense and the customary understanding of the legal profession. And here's what he's saying when it talks about according to the circumstance. He says, if the decision had been made by unanimous concurrence of the judges, so if all nine justices come to the same conclusion, well, you know, maybe I need to take that seriously. Or without any apparent partisan bias. Well, we see lots of partisan bias now in decisions. In fact, we often talk about the decisions in terms of which judges were a part of the decision that were appointed by a Democrat and which ones were appointed by a Republican. He continues and says, if the decision's in accordance with legal public expectation, in other words, what would the legal public expect uh, the court to say? And, he says, if the decision is with the steady practice of the departments throughout our history. So, in other words, is this what we've been doing forever? That's, that's kind of what happens in some of these school prayer cases. Well, not school prayer cases. That's where the court messed up. But with respect to invocations that begin... Uh, sessions of Congress or local governments, they said, you know, if this was unconstitutional, then we've been doing this for an awful long time. So a decision that all of a sudden says, uh, you can't have a prayer before the county commission meeting, he said, Lincoln saying, well, that's not part of the steady practice of the departments throughout our history. 
Surely we weren't doing it wrong the whole time. He says, and if and the case is not based on assumed historical facts, which are not really true. You know, what's the old saying? You're entitled to your own opinion, but not your own facts. And he says, or if maybe it's wanting in some of these things. So, so maybe it's not a unanimous agreement of the judges. Maybe there appears to be some partisan bias on the part of one or two of the judges. Or the case comes out of the blue. It's not in accord with the legal public expectation. Or it's contrary to what we've been doing in the past. He says, but even if some of those might be true, if it had been before the court more than once and had been there affirmed and reaffirmed through a course of years. So in other words, nine justices in the 40s considered it, nine justices in the 60s considered it, nine justices in the 80s considered it, and they all came to the same conclusion so that we can say now we've had nine sets of judges. Maybe some of them overlapped, but over a period of three, four, five decades, well, maybe, maybe those circumstances show that maybe we're wrong. Maybe the court was right. He says if all those things would, would be true, he said perhaps it would be factious, nay, even revolutionary, not to acquiesce in it as precedence. But then he says, however, we have to be careful with those decisions that don't meet any of those prerequisites. He says, we must confess, and this is a quote here, we must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people, in other words, not just the people in the courtroom in a particular case or controversy, but the whole people of the United States or the whole people of a state, is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they're made in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers. Having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. And my friends, that's exactly what our state and federal officials in the legislative and executive branches do all the time. They say, well, there's nothing we can do. The Supreme Court has ruled. It's holding as the law of the land. And that reflects their own ignorance of the Constitution, their own ignorance of the limited nature of the judicial power, or their cowardice to address the issue and stand up for the people they represent to say, no, the court got it wrong in this instance, and I'm not going to acquiesce to a judgment extending to people who are not in front of the courtroom. So, my friends, I hope the next time you hear somebody say, well, the Supreme Court has ruled and that settled it, or the Supreme Court decision is the law of the land, you'll remember today's episode and you will use it to educate them. Use it to educate your elected officials when they say such nonsense. And next week, join me as we look at the question of stare decisis and the Supreme Court saying we must stick with the way we've decided cases in the past. That, too, is really going to irritate you. And I hope you'll join me next week for God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. 
and please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Back Tennessee.